Hey everyone, welcome back to the Fun Boat Diplomacy podcast. Hope everyone's doing well. Not much has been going on with me, um, but last night I got to witness for the first time the Eurovision Song Contest, which I'm not exactly sure how it works. It, to me, it kind of seems like some version of American Idol, but in Europe. Um, and other countries around Europe, including Australia. Um, but it's it's actually older than American Idol. So I, I, it's better put that American Idol got inspiration from Eurovision probably in, at some point uh, in the early 2000s, and then they started their own singing contest. And this is a singing contest where a whole bunch of countries battle it out and see who has the best original song uh, sung by one of the well, one of their uh, home musicians, and uh, yeah, it, the music was quite uninteresting in my opinion. The visuals were mildly satisfying at some points, um, and the the jokes that they made were, were pretty terrible uh, by the hosts. But overall, it was an okay experience. Uh, it was just fun to be with all the people uh, who I'm studying with, just to see what it's like to experience this European phenomenon with them. Um, but otherwise, uh, I wouldn't have been watching this, this show that I don't derive any sort of benefit from. I don't, I don't very much, I don't enjoy very much, um, this kind of thing. And, uh, what was interesting this year is that Israel won, um, it's not part of Europe, so that's interesting to me. And also, the song was not that good. Uh, I mean, mo most of the songs in the Eurovision contest that I saw weren't good, but this one I thought was particularly bad. Maybe I need to give it another listen. Probably I won't. But uh, also, there's this weird visual. It's just like this like larger set Israeli woman. Um, singing in like a kimono and um and all these like neko cats in the background you know like the ones that they have at chinese restaurants where they're like waving their paws um so it, i don't know it was kind of a weird it was kind of a, a weird um uh, aesthetic and it didn't sound good and um it's very much a mystery to me why why she would have won this contest with all these other like quite good singers. But anyway, it's not really my game. It's not. I don't have any sort of um, stake in it. Uh, just interesting to sit there along with my classmates to see it. Anyway, um, this week's episode was all over the place. It was with my friend Stavros, who I met in San Francisco while I was uh, over there a couple years ago, and uh, he was traveling through Europe and decided to come visit me here in Poland. And he's the only one who's done it so far, so um, shame on all of you who haven't done it, but thanks to Stavros for coming, and thanks for him uh, to him for being on the podcast. So please enjoy this week's episode with Stavros Anagnu. <laughs> Hey everyone, welcome back to the Fun Boat Diplomacy podcast. I'm here today with none other than Stavros Anagnu, who I met 
in San Francisco. How long ago? It was two years ago. No? Two years ago, yeah. Two years ago. Now he's visiting me in Poland. Welcome, Stavros. Hi. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So, update us on your life, <laughs> because maybe people have heard um, your other podcasts, and we neither of us remember what we fucking talked about yeah, in that episode. I think, I think I was all over the place because I was just traveling around. Yeah, you were. I think at the time, I was in um, Indiana. In Indiana, and I just found out that. Uh, I could do my assignments online and those cheap flights with the Spirit from Chicago O'Hare to San Francisco. Mm-hmm. So I'd just go in the middle of the semester for like two weeks at a time. How much were flights at the time? Dude, it was like $80 one way, which is kind of expensive to do two ways. But, but it's far. It's good. It's really yeah. far, yeah. I went from LA to Seattle for 70 with Spirit. They do good deals if you book at the, like, the times might be a bit shitty, but like it's, uh, it's worth it. It's a problem it. for me. Especially if you're staying there for like a while, then it doesn't matter if you're a bit sleep deprived yeah, one of the days. Sure. Um, yeah, so um, I do that. Um, then I went back to my university. So I was at Purdue University in Indiana. Then I went back to Sussex in Brighton in England. Finished my degree. I wrote my thesis and stuff. So I did a, I did a summer project on uh, ant evolution. Uh, did we talk about that at all last time? About ants? Maybe a little bit. I was definitely interested at the time. Uh huh. Yeah. We talked more about human psychology, I think. Though. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you since then have gone to um, gone to Africa to study yeah. ants. Yeah. So the second lab project I did was uh, I was really it was right at like crunch time at university, like um, and they messed up our deadlines. So um, we had this Africa trip. And uh, on the day of our dissertation, <clears throat> we had a presentation and a three-hour seminar, and it was worth like a quarter of another like quite big course. Um, so that was really stressful. There's people inside that seminar room. This was right after handing in the dissertation. We gave their presentations, like with, and they they've been awake for like 48 hours. There was like zombies giving presentations, just buzzed off coffee. It just it was really sad, uh, <laughs> and. Um, yeah, and then the next day after that, we had to hand in our... Uh, no, actually... Yeah, no, that same day, we had to hand in our uh, proposal for what we were going to do in Africa. Like, uh, 1,500 were just like, this is what the project we are going to do. And I was so tired of writing. I asked if I could do a documentary instead of write a report in Africa. Like, uh, And in the end, they made me... Um, they made me... <laughs> They made me do a documentary and write a report. You fucked yourself. Yeah, I fucked myself a lot. But it was really, it was really cool to do a documentary. We did on the uh, uh, Megaponera analis species of ant. It's also known as the Matabili warrior ant. So it's named after... Um, I'm not sure which way it goes, but it's, I think it's named after a warrior tribe. So what they do is they, they have scouts that go out and find termite nests. And they they uh, eat mainly termites. And then this, once they find a big termite nest, the scouts uh, come back... And then there's, uh, like, basically come out, like, they march like an army together to the termite nest and completely obliterate it. Like, the big termites, uh, the big, uh, sorry, the big um, megaporter ants, they're, like, over, they're, like, two and a half centimeters, they're pretty big. Um, they break the wood and kill any termite soldiers. And then the little ones, uh, they're called miners, they go into the wood uh, and, like, get the larva, which is what, you know, what they eat, and, like, ferry it back to the nest. And I got, like, 
So it's, it's pretty... like a, it's this other, this one species is preying on the other species, but like the whole, I guess, community. They just like go and just they just go like and then they just and then they don't need to do it because it was really rare to see it. We saw it once. Like I just heard my professor like, Stavros, bring your camera now. Like I started sprinting like and then we missed it by the time we got there. Oh fuck! And so we we had like we were filming other backup stuff, but really the reason we we picked the sands because we did this amazing behavior. You so it was up. really like we we were getting up at like because we were trying to find it. We were getting up at five a.m. in the morning. I just there with like a cigarette and a coffee, just like waiting for the first ant to come out. Just being so tired, and then. We'd maybe nap in the middle of the day and then, like, be out at night till, like, 1 or 2 a.m. Because yeah. it, it was too hot in the middle of the day for the uh, for the ants to come out. They only come out when it's cool. Um, and then eventually we managed to catch a raiding behavior. And that was... It was incredible, man. Like, it was actually, like, like the excitement of being, like, an explorer, <laughs> like, scientist. I was like, you know, I, I, got, I felt that feeling, which was nice. I kind of saw, like, the smile on my professor's face, you know, this really, like... Like all this bullshit, it's been worth it. Like and how it how often does that happen? They go and uh, uh, so they you're do. watching this whole community get fucking obliterated yeah, yeah. <laughs> by ants. Yeah, it's just they get like it's pretty. It's seriously savage because it's just like it goes on for. A, I think it's all done in about half an hour. So you know, we, we had like that much time to get all the shots, mm-hmm. so we can kind of construct a narrative of them going and uh, yeah, and then they to do that they use like uh, pheromone trails as well. Um, so I guess it happens, we saw it in the 10 days we were there, we saw it twice. Because once they do it, I guess they, um, don't eat for a while, but we could have missed it when we were asleep, like, it could have happened more times. Mm. But we actually saw it twice, so that's all I know. Have you seen this video, these videos on YouTube of, uh, I think, well, these are bees now, but it's, like, normal honeybees, I think, and then these, like, I think they're... I'm just not an expert at bugs, but they're these like much larger, like really formidable looking bees. I think they're like the African kind that are like really big and they're attacking like normal honeybees and they just, they're just like going up to them, the whole hive, snapping them in half and yeah. it's like, it's, it's brutal. It's brutal. I haven't seen that, but yeah. Have you seen also that the, um, sometimes when a hornet goes into a bee's nest and does like, you know, snapping stuff apart? Is it just what is one or... One hornet? Yeah, one hornet. Yeah. Wow. Am then, I... like, sometimes what they do is the bees all start vibrating. The bees, because they're, if you're smaller, because of your surface, um, like, uh, surface area, it's a volume ratio. Mm-hmm. You don't heat up as much when mm-hmm. you're smaller. So what they do is they just vibrate, and they generate so much heat, which is fine for them, but it kills the hornet. The hornet, the hornet like, basically, fr- like, fries alive in the nest. Whoa. Just from them, just they just start like buzzing and generating as much body heat as possible. Oh shit! Yeah, it's intense. Did man. you did, did you what? learn a lot about uh other than other than ants? Did you learn about bees? Yeah, so I did a class called Social Insects, uh, taught by this. Um, That's crazy. <laughs> yeah, taught by this uh, really mad guy. Like, uh, really, like I read him as a professor. He's a bit quirky. Uh, uh, professor Francis Ratnicks, and he's like. Um, yeah, he studies like the, it's kind of this like language, quote unquote, that's the loaded term, that uh, bees have to, for talking to each other to, to tell the, each other where the uh, like foraging sites are. And it's called the waggle dance. And what oh, they do is like, you know, they go into a scent, like they do this like 
sort of circular dance kind of like a, it's kind like of a, a figure eight walk a pattern and they walk a pattern and the angle it's at to the sun dictates direction and how long the walk is and how many like times they do it or something along those lines like the details are a bit hazy is the distance so you can actually by measuring taking an average of a few of them doing the dance you can actually go and find the flower patch because they figured out the code basically holy shit of, like how many waggles for this species corresponds to how long like, it's really crazy it's really like these animals, even though they're very simplistic on an individual level, the stuff they can do together is incredible. The collective intelligence. Have you seen this Black Mirror episode? Uh, do you watch Black Mirror? There's that episode with the, the little bee robot drone thing. Oh, fuck, yeah. Yeah. That's terrifying. Yeah. What kind of, what kind of truth does that have? Is it... Well, actually, that has, that's, that has not, not as much to do with bees themselves but more with like, like uh, hive intelligences AIs, yeah. yeah so hive intelligence is really powerful because you can have lots of like cheap dispensable like units yes. that you can lose some of them and it's fine it's not that costly and the whole organism like super organism if you will like uh, still works so they're incredibly hard to kill because if you damage a part of it they it just rearranges itself right? yeah 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 um, and they're cheap, uh, and they can just, in terms of computation, they can follow some very simple rules about like how close they like. It happens with how geese fly together. You know that you can make very simple simulations to like maintain the flight patterns by just if you get too close, do this. If you get too far, do that. Um, like with the ants with the pheromone trails, it's really simple. What happens is uh, we studied this effect in um, uh, the documentary I made as well is uh, that they lay down a pheromone trail if they find food. So um, that's, a pheromone trail is just like this scent they can use to get back to the nest. Another animal smell that. It will also go check if it thinks it's like appropriate, you know, the food. It will also lay down a pheromone trail. And this sets up like positive feedback. So the more go, the stronger the pheromone trails get. Gets, uh, so more of them go, which makes the pheromone trail even stronger. Then this threshold is kind of broken, and that's when they decide to attack. And there's like, it's kind of like actually a decision making, so it can actually. So you have this for multiple possible attack sources, I guess. Um, and you have these individual judgments that they all make, which are pretty unreliable, but together, when you sum them up, the average is actually really good, like spot on. So even though it's like, ants are pretty stupid, their senses aren't that good, they're fucking blind, uh, they're not. <laughs> I don't know why I'm talking so crudely, but they have really <laughs> shitty senses, generally. They, they don't have very good um, like sensory acuity compared to humans or other animals. But they use collective intelligence as a way of getting around that. So they can decide yeah, between resources based on this collective decision-making, which I find fascinating. Um, and that's why I also find swarm intelligence terrifying as well. Yeah. Could read that Black Mirror episode. With, with that, uh, that's, could you apply that to what self-driving cars are? Because... They're not like a hive, but it, they, there's a similarity where they they all have uh, have their um, commands, I guess, or like parameters, and then uh, and then they also learn from each other. So I don't know if like yeah, Uber's so fleet is a uh, is a hive per se, but maybe in like a small sense, I don't know if um, 
I'm not really familiar with like how the algorithms work for like self-driving cars or Uber. This is you okay. should watch this uh, this movie. Lo and behold, lo and behold, Werner Herzog. Yeah, all of you at home. I've been recommended to watch that before. <laughs> all of you at home as well. It's a good one. It's on Netflix. Uh, what are some other interesting insect-related things insect that you related learned? Insect-related facts. Uh, so the other thing we studied in the documentary was um, uh, it was uh, called uh, near enemy, dear enemy. So basically. Um, Generally, animals like ants, when they meet someone from another nest, from another queen, and they're genetically different, they fight. Uh, but the even though the they pose just as much as a threat, like you know, a, let's say you have a nest that's over there, like say like ten feet away, then a nest that's thirty feet away, and this is quite a big distance for ants. They'll actually hate ants from further away. The rather I hate ants, so I'm not using the proper terminology, they'll show more aggression mm-hmm. to ants who are much further away. And this kind of scales, we found this like, uh, um, I think it was a, some sort of exponential relationship, I can't remember exactly, but they get a lot more aggressive as the ants were further away. And they can tell by the sort of pheromones. Um, so we basically put them in arenas, mark down which nests they were from in the distance, and then see if they would fight. Um, and it's interesting because the theory behind it is that even if you're, because um, it makes more sense in a way to attack the person nearby because they're the person who's going to compete with resources for you, with, uh, with you. Uh, but because you're so close to each other, you're going to run into each other a lot. So it doesn't make sense to fight all the time because it's just it's do, a lose lose. Do they like understand this logic? No, or they just have I don't. Know. So this is so they they have in, instincts that have been engineered by evolutionary pressures, right? And does this affect like pheromone? Yeah, I, I guess I don't remember the pheromone mechanism exactly, but basically, when it comes to nests that are closer a bit, they will still fight, but just like not as aggressively. Um, and so yeah, even if they're competing for the resor- same resources, it doesn't make sense to just fight each other all the time. Whereas ants from far away, if they're close to you for some reason, it means they could be expanding their territory and therefore like encroaching on your resources. So it makes sense to fight them. That's the theory. So it's is, kind of this, like cost benefit. So is it like natural then for creatures to kind of distrust and be uh, aggressive towards foreigners? Yeah, that's that's <laughs> the thing. It's it's interesting because like uh, when I've screened that documentary in a small cafe in Brighton. Tom, one of the boosters, is like, so ants are racist. Yeah. Like, like, I thought only humans were racist, but ants are racist. Or, like, however, (laughs) like, if you can imagine that there are some sort of, like, city-states that are, like, they're, like, xenophobic in some way by pheromone. Yeah. That's crazy. Mm. I mean, it's probably not on the same level as humans. No, because they're not thinking about it like that, but it has something to do with, like, chemicals being produced. But that's even weirder, right? Yeah, it's just, I mean, it is this... uh, there is a general principle that in humans actually might be one of the few exceptions that what actually makes us different from animals. No, but generally, like, it's like you, you're unfriendly to outsiders. If it's different from you, like it's, you should be careful. So with humans, a big challenge in how like, we got all these big societies and stuff is like, how do you stop just caring after people who are related to you and start like, making, cooperating with people who are unrelated to you? Does it make sense to cooperate with people who are related to you because they have the same genes as you? So even if you die, they're in a sense still carrying on 
I think it's genetically and they're genetically similar enough to you so that you can. Um, I think it has to do with the thing that you were talking about. How I think I think in game theory you would call it like repeated interactions. Mm. So the ants know. I was going to move on to that yeah, yeah. through evolution. Uh, that they uh, shouldn't. The ants know. Quite they, some, yeah, somehow they yeah. <laughs> they've built in somehow to their the way they function like yep. this thing where they don't attack the people, their neighbors basically. That's not through like interaction directly. It's through like instinct or something. Or, yeah, which is and that instinct's been shaped by yeah. evolution. And then the further yeah. you are, the more the less trust that you have, um, just based on distance. Yeah. But I guess for humans. Uh, it does have to do with uh, repeated interactions, and like, oh, okay, well, I guess we're cool. <laughs> it's like that, yeah. And then you sort of normalize that, because like, oh, I think up until very recently, twentieth century, it was like that. Like, you're from you look you're from really far away. I don't trust you. My yeah. first, my first go-to is not that we're we're friendly. Yeah, or it's not like especially in cities. There's a lot of repeated interaction. Exactly. Or rather, when settlements started getting bigger. And an interesting theory in terms of like getting people to cooperate as well, as well as reciprocity, so repeated interaction. Exactly. Um, is um, sort of the concept of big God religions. So this is a book called Big Gods. And it's basically how, you know, the big God religions, ones that have this omnipresent, omnipotent, sort of all-seeing God, and it can send you to to help, basically, based on your deeds on this earth. Um, the theory was that if you think someone's watching you, um, that you think someone might be in the room, you you're less likely to, uh, you know, less likely to uh, cheat or like uh, you know act, uh, cut do corners. something, cut corners, do something that's bad for the group, right? So if you have an idea that someone is watching you all the time and knows what you're doing, and that can be extremely powerful. And there's an experiment where it was to show how, like, it's an unconscious thing even. Like, we don't even realize we do it. They had this thing where they had this, you know, like, um, you get some coffee and you just leave some change, take some change or whatever, you know. Uh, and people were more likely to leave change, or not take change, rather. Basically, more likely to be generous and not steal. If they were just... Uh, like near the basket, there was just a pair of eyes, just a poster, of a pair of eyes. Wow! And most people didn't even notice the eyes. It was it was unconsciously affecting them. That's crazy. Like we un- unconsciously, we always we're taking streams from environment all the time. We don't even notice it, and it affects our behavior. Like uh, it's a scary. We were talking about this the last time: conscious and unconscious behavior. But I still find it fascinating. Um, we constantly take in, yeah information and unconsciously and it affects our behavior and like a lot of behavior is done is not really done we don't really decide it we don't get a chance to it's all done unconsciously which is a scary realization yeah but also it's like if we consciously tried to make decisions for every little thing it would be overwhelming that's why we that's why we go ahead and uh fall back on on some instincts some just like ready to go uh actions uh, responses to things um, it's nice that you know when a bus is coming, it's pretty close. So you just have this impulse to get out of the way. Yeah. Instead yeah. of just like, okay, what do I do in this? Oh yeah, I should get out. Of the Did way. that happen the other day, yesterday? 
I feel like we. Oh, no, it was just earlier. We almost got hit. You almost got. Uh, we didn't get hit. I was just like, <laughs> you crossed the road and I didn't. Yeah, I'm. I'm pretty used to just like telling the trams here to fuck off. <laughs> yeah. Um. Yeah. Do you want to talk a bit about your uh, travels other than your study part? Yeah. Your, yeah. Uh, sure. Of, of um, South Africa, and you also went to Zimbabwe. Right? Yeah. So South Africa is really interesting. So Zimbabwe. I'll start with Zimbabwe. That's where we started off. Um. We're staying in a research lodge near Lower Zambezi National Park, near Victoria Falls. And uh, it was amazing sort of waking up in the morning and having like wildebeest running around and like, you know, some baboons stole my towel, uh, which I left hanging outside and we're like playing with it in the trees and like putting it over their heads and stuff. Baboons just having sex constantly, that was also a thing. Um, what is their behavior when it comes to that? Because uh, I know that it's the bonobos who have like the most liberal oh, so they call behavior. it like the bonobo handshake or something or yeah, yeah. but what about baboons or are they just I saw it like a few times I don't know I, I didn't really pay enough attention to them I wonder or like uh, they were just everywhere I didn't really yeah. and we had like uh, we all had projects to do. I didn't pay too much attention to you know that song um, why don't we do it in the road on the white album with the Beatles yes. it's uh, it's written by Paul McCartney because like when they're in India he saw monkeys fucking in the road and then he wrote this song. <laughs> nice. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, it's pretty funny. <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, so Zimbabwe is really cool, really beautiful country. Obviously, you have to use US dollars though, because they don't have a currency yeah. anymore. Yeah. For those of you who are wondering, you can jump back a few episodes from a few months ago to... The episode I did with Tawanda, he, uh, he he was explaining to me what the fuck is going on in Zimbabwe because he he grew up there like since the beginning of the nineties until very recently. He's like he, he was, he's from Zimbabwe, so talking about like uh, just stupid stupid economic planning that went on down there. So now they don't have their own currency. Uh, well, they do, but you, wait, do they? You just can't use it. It's not yeah, worth they, anything. I think that the time they tried this like Zimbabwe like bond thing like okay. it wasn't quite like a Zimb- it wasn't like a currency it was more of a like I don't know what bonds are like you can get bonds in America as well right? yeah 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 so you could use that but it hadn't like on the street everyone's using dollars US dollars um, but you might get uh, the, the way that a professor of mine was talking it was like you could you could give in one currency and get change in a different currency oh really yeah but you got dollars back right yeah yeah, because the the professor was saying that he was there and he was he was like giving uh, U.S. dollars and getting like uh, like Japanese Chinese currency back, like whatever they had. And I don't know what how they, they had. I don't know how they calculate how much change you should get. Because that must be so complicated. Yeah. Other than that, the people were really nice. The country was beautiful. Uh, just amazing, like you know, seeing elephants off in the distance and just. Like, there was a lot of just people being in shocked silence. Um, Were you ever afraid, the, afraid of the wildlife? I don't think I ever got really scared. There were some people with us that got really scared. Around and, like, what? I was, we were told beforehand, like, or at least I was around for it, that you should, no matter what happens, trust the driver. They know exactly what they're doing. They're really mm-hmm. experienced. Even if you feel scared, like, you're in safe hands. And there was, uh, I can't remember if it was an elephant or something else like in front of us. And we just stopped and we're like having this amazing view. And we're all quiet. And the um, two people in the back started freaking out. 
and they're like, turn on the engine, turn on the engine, let's go, let's go. And then like the animal got spooked. Yeah. And then it was like actually like turned into a bit of a dangerous situation. Yeah. But I get it. I get it. They're scared though. Like there's a scary thing to, you know, most of these animals can kill you if they want to. That's what's freaky about Africa. Yeah. Also Australia. Yeah. I mean, as long as you're careful, it seems fine, but there is a risk. Yeah. Elephants don't give a fuck. Like yeah. we, we think that they're, um, we think that they're these like, uh, benevolent plant eating like gentle giants most of the time they are but uh, you get in their way they don't give a fuck and they're huge mm. are they the great biggest land animal? I think they are right can't think of a bigger one yeah I think so <laughs> like land mammal for sure anything else you saw in Zimbabwe? um so I'm trying to think. It's actually like... Uh, How long ago was this? A year ago? This is over a year ago. No. Okay, this maybe was, that's uh, stretching your memory. Huh? Yeah, it's... Um, so I got to take pictures, man. So I take pictures. Like I, I have pictures. They're just not, I take, not with me currently. Like, I take pictures constantly because my, my memory is dog shit. So there's like no way I can... Um, no way I can I could bring up like memories if I didn't have uh, yeah. the image in my head taken through my camera. Yeah, it's true. Like, I think I did take, I do take some for posterity. Not so much that I, like, forget, you know, remember it all through a screen, but enough so that I'm, that I can look at something and, like, it would jog my memory. So let me look very quickly. Oh, this is some busy beer. Uh, so, you know. Any good? Zimbabwe's on beer. I mean, it's, it's fine, but I like the novelty. Maybe it's, like, the beer here. Was it? Is the beer in Poland any better? It seems about the same, pretty tasteless beer. Yeah, tasteless. Oh, it's an elephant. Yeah, it's elephants. Like, it's just how, sort of, like, majestically they move as well. As well let's get them while they're... How close were you ever allowed to get to elephants? So, we, this was interesting. This was, when we were in the National Park, we didn't get that close. And when we went to, like, the more safari kind of places in Zambia, we went to see, like, um, how this NGO handled... Um, you know, uh, sort of reintroducing things into the wild and captivity compared to being, you know, in the national park. And in captivity, elephants would get really close. They'd even, you know, like do tricks and stuff. The driver would, like bang on the on the hood or whatever, and they'd do stuff. But it didn't feel nearly as exciting. And I actually preferred where I'd be quite far away, like when maybe it's fifty wild. meters, and it's wild. And you see, like sometimes we saw like. Like at night, with just like they just we went out for a few nights so far, and they just had these red lights, mm-hmm. and I just saw like like a hyena staring right at us, like you know, with this like hunched back kind of, and you see the red flashing in its eyes. It was maybe three seconds, then it went away, but it was incredible. Cool. Like it felt so spooky and so. Did you ever see more hyenas? Yeah, we saw a few. I mean, that was the thing is like don't go out at night. <laughs> oh jeez. <laughs> oh yeah, don't go within three meters of the river. We had a river at the is, bottom of where we were staying. Because of hippos. Hippos, crocodiles. Jesus. Like, it's just like, and it's, there'll be something hidden in the, you won't see it, and it'll wait for you, and then... Yeah, hippos kill more people than lions, I think. Because you think, like, oh, hippos, you know, they're not aggressive, they can be very aggressive. Yeah, I mean, look, their jaws are huge, scare me. Uh, And hyenas, you look, you watch Lion King, they look small because they're compared to lions in the shot. Hyenas are, like, large dogs, basically, and then they have this weird reproductive thing where... The females have to give birth through this like weird. You know about this? This like penis thing. It's right? like a penis like birth canal. So yeah. they have, they almost kind of have like bigger dicks than the males. 
really weird. This is when um, we found like an elephant because we heard like some bumps in the night and an elephant had actually come into the the lodge where we were staying. So that like shit behind and like destroyed a tent. Whoa. Yeah. Wait, how big was your lodge that an elephant could come in? Pretty big. I mean, this is the kind of like, this is just one area of it. Like it was, a, it is like right near the national park. Let me see if there's, there's the baboons. And then down there at some point. But during this whole time that you were... Um, at least them having sex. <laughs> <laughs> and then, like, one of them chases them away. We just, like, saw this... You see, suddenly there's just, like... So during, during your whole time, there, you, were, you were mostly not in urban areas? In, when I was in Zimbabwe, yeah, I wasn't in urban areas. Almost. I didn't go to Harare, for instance. Uh-huh. But then... Uh, this is the view from my, where I was staying. There's just a river down there. Yeah, so you were, you were based in... Your studies, or your uh, research was based in... Zimbabwe, yeah, and then, and then uh, so the, you incidentally you went to South Africa. So, so we flew in South Africa, and then we had like a, so our project was to be done Zimbabwe and terrestrial animals, it's people doing all sorts of stuff, giraffe social behavior. Uh, it was one that we kept on when we were getting drunk. We kept on uh, repeating because they called the project the landscape of fear, and it's just about like predation, and, like you know, <laughs> like the, the topography of that, and then just like you know, I. Uh, some of the people on the course say the landscape of fear. <laughs> then we did this. We once uh, we um, we stayed out, and this on the way to like a uh, we stayed for like a night watch once. Oh, you don't have it. No, I think I took pictures on my camera, but here it just got really dark, and we just used like special like flashlights and like night vision stuff to see like elephants get really really close because it was dark. We mm. just had to be really quiet. Then we had we had a barbecue beforehand, as you can see. It's pretty sweet. Did you barbecue that cricket? No, this is just I saw like just oh these are tiny ants, but they're dragging on? the cricket. These Wait. are these are really small ants. So they're trying to eat that cricket. They're trying to drag it back to the nest. And is, these, is these it dead are the or is it? Uh, it's still a little bit alive. Wow, nature's fucked. I have to be really careful with showing people this footage because I don't realize how desensitized I am. No, I mean I I, mean, I, I know I you said I grew up watching like nature shit but um oh, but yeah i mean it's still it's still really uh <laughs> even though it's even though it's bugs it's pretty rough stuff like once uh, in nature once you once you start slipping something's gonna get you yep something's gonna get you but this uh no one on the podcast can see this i'll just speak through it victoria <laughs> right. falls is very beautiful like seeing like the rainbow like come through you know uh, one of the seven wonders of the world, seven natural wonders of the world. This more on the safari where we could get really close. Anyway, that's that's Zimbabwe, South Africa. So the second part of the trip was uh, marine biology, mm-hmm. and we didn't have to do projects as much. We had to complete a few things, like identify a few like species and stuff. But it was just scuba diving, and I had to train in the lake where it was six degrees in uh, in England in March, which fucking sucked. But then. It was worth it when we got to um, the. Uh, was we went on the Western Cape and the Eastern Cape near Durban on the Eastern Cape, where water temperature was sick. Um, really like good visibility. Like we saw a tiger shark. Oh yeah, and we just there was no cage. We just dove with the sharks. Fuck out of here. Yeah, <laughs> we just yeah. That's the thing. Like people were really shocked about this, but like it started near Durban. Like as a thing, people started diving with actual sharks because they realized. 
as long as you don't do anything stupid, like, it's fine. They won't bother with you. So, although, I did do one thing that was really bad. They told me, don't do this. Like, always use your feet, your flippers, because when you do this, like it kind of creates this flash in the water, and you look like a seal. And I started doing this at one point, and I see this, like, uh, I think it was a bull shark just started, like, looking at me and started investigating me, and the, the, the instructor came over and just, like, put my hands down, and she's like, that is terrifying. Yeah. And I was like, I don't know why I didn't freak out in the moment. I was fine. But afterwards, I thought about it. I was like, I was fucked. Yeah. I didn't realize. How big was like, the shark? We had signed a waiver, obviously. How big like, was the shark? Big. Like, uh, it would have fucked you up. Two, two and a half meters. It would have fucked you up, right. Basically, yeah. For sure. Oh, Jesus. Uh, no, no. Not for me. I, I would prefer, if I'm going to do that at all, prefer the cage. Okay. It's me with some lions. <laughs> So Dude, the, man. The, the NGO we went to see, so these are the lions that... Is it safe? I don't think this is safe. It's very... Like, they had a stick, and they said if it turns around, because they're meant to be facing forward, you hit it in the head, right? <laughs> you have to show dominance. That's so savage. And you tap to see... Yeah, you have to be really... And it's like... It was really, like... I really trusted the guides and stuff, but it did feel really scary at points, because... So these are captively raised ones, so the way this program works So was, they kind of behave like cats, like... Kind of. I don't know, pretty, They like, still have the lion programming but they're they know that humans are uh, yeah they don't have to be they will be fed even if humans are hanging out hanging around right yeah yeah it's fair. not something so, that uh, maybe like yeah I guess, I guess so they're definitely more tame than wild lions yes uh, but the way this program worked is that they'd have one of them breed them um and uh, like so they have ones bred in captivity so there's a li- like a huge lion shortage like it's um, at the moment and then they do uh, the second generation will be bred in a semi-wild environment and the third generation which was raised in the semi-wild environment they'll be released into the wild set up their own pride so it's like this three stage program so that usually the ones from captivity are pretty useless in the wild so it's this gradual thing so yeah really they transfer them to sort of like open range kind of reserve thing yeah and then it, and then it goes completely, completely into the wild yeah, yeah and obviously they keep an eye on them so poachers don't kill them was stuff. anybody uh, on your not your team but any associates maybe they were were they studying lions or you did you just go visit the lions uh we just went to visit like uh at that when we it was part of the ngo was like uh working with us as well mm. so we they also got to see their facilities and stuff um yeah Oh, damn, there's a lot of kids these days. Yeah. There's a lot of school trips here. I guess it's a good time of year. And did you... Uh, did you? Uh, exp- was there anything outside? Oh, there's that... Did you go to Cape Town? Yeah, Cape Town, yeah. How was that? So I was there for a week. Stayed in a nice hostel. Nearly got mugged. Just got someone tried to pull my phone out of... Like, he asked me for money. I said no. Then he tried to take my phone from my pocket. On the street? Uh, outside my hostel. Outside the hostel. I Just bet like, they're, like, used to that. They're used to, like, praying on yeah. tourists and stuff. Yeah, and I was, like, really, like... I remember being really angry and, like, shouting after him. So the people, I think he was, like, really young, like, maybe 17, 18. Mm-hmm. So, like, he wasn't that good at it. So, like, he kind of pulled the phone out. And then, like, I kind of turned and he dropped it. Um, like, I'd come back from, like, a wine tour, so I was really drunk. Yeah. So I was, like, really, like... Like, he picked, like, he picked a good target, right? Um, so, yeah, Stellenbosch, the wine tour, was really good. Uh, Cape Town, beautiful, but inequality is disgusting. Um, especially if you, I went out to the to the Cape Flats, to sort of like the 
It's kind of similar to like the favelas in southern Southern America. Mm-hmm. And it was through someone I met in Durban. They said like this person will give you a tour, and they just put me with someone there from the community. He just took me around, and there's people staying in like shipping containers, and I just still sheet stuff. And I was just going talk to them, and they were just very happy to talk to me and show me how their lives were. And they're like, just appreciate what you have. That was just the message. What was, was it like? Like it was just people around fires uh, like a little community and just people lived in shipping containers quite literally like they all lived it was pretty harrowing and it's most of them you know were moved from District 6 so if that sounds familiar it's because District 9 which is set in South Africa is based off that yeah, yeah, yeah. except instead of aliens it was uh, Real black people, people. yeah <laughs> so uh, yeah it's uh, it was pretty harrowing learning about all of apartheid and stuff and seeing that a lot of the segregation is still there like so you got desegregated pretty recently so it's still there's still a lot of work to do and there's still a lot of tension like this black homeless woman who asked me for some money she said to me like when I said no she said like oh fucking whitey like you come to our country and like you know you think you can like go around and stuff you don't give anything back so like the tension's still there you know like uh, it, the, not that it is in other countries but especially South Africa and it is uh, it is dangerous in certain areas. Like, be very careful when you're there. It is fine most of the time. Uh, actually, once I was getting an Uber from outside a club. Very good and cheap clubs there, actually. Fantastic stuff. Really good, really decent techno. Um, I came out of the club and this guy's like, do you want a taxi? I'm like, no, I'm good. He's like, did you just call an Uber? I'm like, yeah. And he's like, we start talking. And he's like, you know, Stavros, I like you. But, you know, you should be careful in Cape Town. It can be dangerous. Someone might try to check your shoe. I kind of look at him and he's like, he's like, you don't know what that means? He starts laughing. Like, Let me show you. And I start getting, like, I get a bit guarded. And he's like, don't worry. Like, I won't do anything to you. And he says, like, people would be like, oh, let me see your shoe. Like, your shoelace untied. And then, like, he comes back up. And my phone is here. In his armpit. What? And just the sleight of hand, and he said, and he gives me back my phone. He's like, "Be careful! If someone tells That's you to incredible. look down, don't look down. Keep walking." That's incredible. And something the next day it happened. Someone was just like, asked about your shoes. He's like, "Hey, do you want some? Do you want some weed?" I'm like, "No, nah, I'm good." And he's like, "Hey, what shoes are you wearing?" And I went. I became very conscious of my pockets. And he starts laughing. The guy's like, "Ah, like you know what I was gonna do? <laughs> you know?" <laughs> it's like a different world, man. Yeah. yeah, I don't know what that would be like. I've never been. But it's weird, like certain parts, like of Cape Town, like it's like it's like San Francisco. It looks very similar yeah. topographically, and there's pla- it's just beautiful. And like some areas, what was the name of it? There's this really fancy beach area. Um, yeah, should I have my friend uh, Jody on on the podcast. She is from there, and uh, she probably give her more. I was there a week. Yeah, so she I was talking to me about uh, how it's getting weird there with land distribution with white people. And how I think, what are they trying to do? They're trying to, well, neither of us are experts, I guess, so it's whatever. <laughs> but it's like they're trying to um, reclaim land from white landowners and give it back to black they locals. Seem, no, yeah. they're all locals, I guess. Like, uh, <laughs> but is the a, issue. a guy I talked to on the plane and like some people I talked to, there is a lot of like, sort of like white guilt, firstly. And secondly, it's similar to America, actually. And secondly, there's also this kind of like, well, if you're black now, it's easy to get a job, like that kind of like rhetoric. 
like you know if you're like you know a young white dude like it's really difficult um, I don't know the facts on this but that's what that seemed to be a sentiment that was um, that was around and there was like this subtle resentment as well um, yeah but I say like in South Africa the social problems are a lot worse than America the, I think the scars are a lot fresher the rather the wounds are a lot fresher it's very it it's pretty harrowing there especially like like one of the days um, I met this guy Patrick he worked for an NGO that found entrepreneurs in disadvantaged, disadvantaged communities and he took me to this place called Bzolis which is in one of the Cape Flats little settlements um, and we met one of his clients or one of the people helping out was a clothes designer but lived you know lived in one of these uh, favela type things mm-hmm. and uh you go and get your meat, you choose it, they fry it up there, they give you a bowl, you take it outside, you pay, you take it outside, and they have this little bar area, and it was a Sunday. And, like, even though the people there didn't have much, they knew how to party, man. Like, it was, like, a whole day party, and I think, honestly, that's when I learned how to properly enjoy dancing. Like, I enjoyed it before, but something clicked after that. There's something about whether, whether it's the life in Zimbabwe and the diversity of animals and insects and plants you see, or the life in the people, like, you know, down in the Cape Flats, like, it's something about the energy of Africa. Sorry to use that half, really vague, (laughs) half-baked hippie philosophy term, (laughs) but, like, the energy of, uh, of Africa was uh, incredible. I was, I really, like, I took it back with me. Like, it really, it is, uh, there's there's something really cool about it. People that are so grateful, even though they don't have much, I feel like it's a lot lot of these places where people have very little, and uh, there's, of course, a lot of hardship, but then somehow, it seems that there's a lot of joy, like, they, they have, like, crazier insights than we in the, let's call it, developed world, uh, more developed, maybe. Economically developed, perhaps. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Somehow, we we miss some things. Yeah, there's also, like, also the same same thing, I don't want to spread this misconception that Africa's, you know, like, starving kids and stuff, like, in Zimbabwe it was, it was bad, but it wasn't that bad, like, it was like, society functioned to a certain extent, like, and in Cape Town, like, it was I saw it as a world city, it was you know, mm. it was uh, incredible, really clean most areas. Don't they have a, don't they have a, a, a spin-off of Burning Man there? Yeah. That, I went to a fundraiser for that when I was there, and it was oh. this funk band playing. That's how uh, you know it's. That's how you know South Africa's over. <laughs> no, I don't know. I'm joking. Were you making like a hipster jab though, or is it more of a? Yeah, yeah. Exactly. Okay, right, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> the funk band is raising like the equivalent of Burning Man. Yeah. But yeah, it's uh, it it was really Cape Town was a really cool city. I definitely recommend to anyone to go. Really unique vibe. People are really nice. I really like South Africans. It's like, what's what, what, um, what blows my mind is that uh, it's it's like such. I mean, you look at the map, you never, like, I don't really consider that much uh, flight distances and times, north and south. I usually am going east to west. Yeah. But, like, so the Far. distance is, like, how long does it take to fly there? It's from London, it was, uh, direct flight was 11 hours. So it's, like, from, it's, like, flying directly from London to before California, right? No, it's, yeah, it'd be, like, flying to, to Chicago or something. No, Chicago's, like, eight hours. Really? So it's like flying to maybe Arizona or, jeez. Maybe further north, maybe like Idaho. I don't know if you can fly to Idaho though. Yeah, I don't know. 
as well. That I don't know. Um, have you been back to Greece? Yeah, so that was a cool thing about uh, this year, sort of like having a year off after my studies, is I went back to Greece and I uh, really made a conscious effort to reconnect with Greek culture because I hadn't really been hadn't really been back properly in four years other than to see family for a week. So I was busy with internships and stuff like that during the summer. Uh, and it was it was amazing to reconnect with my cousins. Turns out we had a lot in common. Uh, we, and one of my cousins both write poetry. Like the other ones, like we're really into the same like sort of like social circles and stuff. And uh, yeah, to get reacquainted with the sort of like the humor of Greece and like the which is you really want really stupid and really in your face. Whereas English humor is really subtle and really clever. Greek humor is like, like to give you an example, this is my cousin's dad, this is my uncle. And he knew this guy that owned like, uh, fucking hell. He knew this guy. <laughs> it's the best. No, it's nice. I actually like having uh, like church bells go off nice. on the podcast. So, yeah. It's like, it gives, it gives it like a more authentic yeah. feel. Yeah, yeah, but anyway. Yeah, anyway, so this uncle, he knew like a guy who ran like a, a few like uh, bakeries. Like, a few, like it was a fairly big chain at the time. Um, and he'd go he, this guy would always smoke cigars the owner and my uncle knew him and was friends with him and uh, he'd always like he had this tick where he just like or like habit where he'd lick the cigar before lighting it and just always just kind of like like sort of kind of like play with it like you know sort of like fiddle with it and then you know my uncle walks in all the employees in front it was like like everyone's looking at him and he's like, why are you looking at that cigar so much? You're going to, you know, stick it in your ass or something? Like, <laughs> and it was just like really, that was like a killer joke. I was like, oh, <laughs> all the employees. Oh. <laughs> it's like that gif with the, the dude. Um, you know, he's like the, the guy who just like said a sick burn. He's just like this. And then the guy's like, oh. <laughs> yeah, yeah, the like best rap battle ever. And so it was, it's like, uh, oh, man, it's one of my favorite things. He's like, like this guy does a battle rap and everyone's like, oh, that was okay, that was okay. Then he's like, uh, this guy just says this. Like, he's like, my ex-girlfriend just broke up with me. Ooh. He's like, here's a number. Ooh. Psych, that's the wrong number. Oh! <laughs> Everyone goes crazy. Oh! <laughs> it's like so, people losing their minds jumping around. Right. That's, what, a, that's what Greece is like. Is kind of jokes. Yeah, it is, it's stuff like that. Like, uh, and it, it sounds like it sounds like the kind of jokes that they'd have uh, in in like gangster movies, like Italian gangster movies. Yeah, it is. It's a little bit like that, except in Greece we don't take ourselves very seriously at all, which is really nice. There's ball no busters, like, ball busters. Yeah, it's like ball busters and like it's very, I don't know, like accepting and loving as well. Like it's very just like, oh, are you okay? Like, do you need anything? Like, it's always like caring for each other, which is really nice. And in terms of sort of the getting into Greek culture itself, uh, I was gifted um, two things, actually. One from my uncle was an album from, uh, it was remix, electronic remixes of uh, Manos Khadzidakis, who's like this Greek composer. He did the music and won an Oscar for, for Never on a Sunday. There's a Greek movie from the 60s. Um, and uh, it was electronic remixes, and it was done in 2003, and it was used in the closing ceremony of the Greek Olympics, 2004. And I was um, blown back by how amazing it was, and like the poetry and the lyrics and stuff, and sort of this, uh, you know, all this really sort of 
really uh, quite close to like a lot of Greek people's like classical, classical and sort of like a more modern composing, but recontextualized in sort of electronic music. That was incredible. And then also like uh, the Greek poet, Seferis. I was gifted a book of Seferis and I've started reading that. And also I got into Rebetico music, which is really interesting. What is that? Rebetico music. That? It's a very specific type of Greek music that emerged in the early 1900s. So there's a need, you need a, there's a bit of history about this. Um, so end of World War One, Ottoman Ottoman Empire has fallen. Greece gets a bit top heavy, right? Balkan League and stuff. We're going to expand into Turkey or what is now Turkey. Um, and like we're going to take Constantinople. We're going to take wait, wait, Smyrna. Where's, where's, Bul- where's Bulgaria and all this? Bulgaria is like helping out, but Greece was like leading the effort, I think. So they're both like teaming up, kind of. Yeah, I mean, the, the, all the Balkans were kind of like, fuck, fuck the Ottoman Empire. But Greece, right. especially, like, we want to make this ours. Yeah, yeah. Like Greek, big time in Greek nationalism. And uh, Kajuk the Turk, the guy who's modern Turkey is named after, what was his name? Ataturk. Ataturk. Yeah. He just waits for Greece to stretch out their supply lines and there's a massive counterattack. And it was terrible, like... Especially Smyrna and Constantinople, which are now Izmir and uh, Istanbul. They used to be these sort of semi-autonomous, multi-racial, multi-ethnic, uh, multi-religious societies. And then after that, like, they said, we need to separate the Greeks and the Turks. How do we do that? Because like, it's kind of hard to separate the nationality. The cultures are so mixed up and intertwined with each other. I can't remember who decided this. I think a lot of Western nations got together and they're like, we'll do it by religion. Or Muslims to Turkey, or Christians to Greece. Job done, right? Oh my God, this is like so, always the solution. Yeah. This so, is the 20th century solution. Yeah. So, so obviously, right, there's some Christians in Turkey that were very Turkish and had lots of elements of Turkish culture. So it wasn't that easy, you know, like, of course they not. would just neatly line up. So when they did this population exchange, mil- I'm talking millions of refugees um, in the slums of Piraeus, the port town, it became sort of like a really dangerous area. But they brought three things with them. They brought pain, music, and another thing important from Turkey, hashish. And all of these three combined with local Greek culture and Greek uh, music to create what is called the Greek, like it's called the blues of uh, sort of Greek music, right? So it comes from like the underclasses. Mm-hmm. It was uh, usually played in hashish dance. And a lot of the songs are about getting high. And like some of them, or they're about like deep, like really, painful experiences. This early, early 1900s. It's early 1900s. Cool. And it sort of kept on going through the 20s. It was made illegal by Metaxas at one point. So they had, uh, so you had the Buzuki, of course. You had the Zura, which is like a even smaller one. Then you had this really small one called the Baglama. And the thing with the Baglama, because it was illegal to play, because it was small, it was like this. You could hide it under your jacket if the police came. Because basically they associated you... They called them magis or alites, like people who usually play that music were involved in drugs or in crime. So they just, if they saw you with it, you were like smash it over your head and put you in jail. Right? It's pretty intense. So the baglama as well. The other thing is you could play in jail because it was so small. You could even with handcuffs, you could still play. (laughs) Um, So it was like an outlaw thing too. It was an outlaw. So it was born. They say it was born in the hash dens and the jails. So it's it's like the blues and uh, and like badass country all, all, all in one yeah pretty much in yeah. terms of the spirit in terms, in terms of, the of the music spirit, it yeah. sounds like almost psychedelic I'd argue it has a yeah. lot of like eastern eastern uh, very scales. dark sounding um, yeah eastern scales like very 
I gotta check that out. The Dark Side. It's really I I fell in love with that music. There's a great movie with subtitles on YouTube called The Rebetico, which is about uh, sort of the birth of this music, and like into the 50s and 60s, it got popularized by people like Tsitsanis, um, who turned into Laiko music, which was a more pop version of Rebetico, basically. Um, so is that, is and that, that docu- became is that a documentary the movie so there's a documentary which is like six hours which oh, is really in depth <laughs> and I don't think it has English subtitles sadly but yeah. there is a movie that's it won the the one you mentioned uh, it won the it, became, it was runner up at the Berlin Film Festival 1984 okay. for the best movie oh cool uh, it's really I really recommend it really great music in it as well even though it's it's not all the rabbitical stuff it's been written for the purpose of the movie mm-hmm. fantastic really good so um yeah, when I was in um, Thessaloniki, actually, a guy who took us around, he took us to Titanis Square. Titanis was one of the big composers of Rebetica music and the great popularizer of it. And he played music to us. And then later, later that evening, there was a big party to celebrate uh, Titanis' birthday, or to honor him. And they had, you know, Rebetica musicians, including the person that Titanis gave his bouzouki to, who's still alive, and is like considered one of the best living, still alive Rebetica players he played as well. Um, Thessaloniki is a cool town I got to visit there as well you've been really? there before or those are your first the time? first time what's it like so it's got like it's a lot more Byzantine than Athens so there's a lot of like Byzantine buildings which is sick that's rad and then you have all the ancient stuff and the Roman stuff too and it's all really small it's like sort of similar to how do you pronounce the city's name again Wrocław Wrocław it's similar size <laughs> and you have like this castle at the top where you have an amazing view of the city and people just hang out there in the castle with a few beers then you have the bottom, which is um, uh, sort of just like this poor area which people just hang out in. Lots of musicians, lots of Antifa, lots of punk people. Lots of, you constantly hear music in the streets, people busking and stuff. If you're into that, that's a great place. And people playing, even young people, the Rebetica songs, even though the heyday of it was 1930s, young people are still really into it. There's something so like... Everyone I know like who's just a little bit into the arts is really into Rebetica. Mm. Like it is this, it's very, the music is very powerful, it's very emotional, it's very cathartic. It reminds me of, you've never been to Portugal, right? No, it reminds me of Fado, which is like kind of the similar feel. Uh, not exactly the same, but I'm surprised that uh, people, it's not just old people who like to listen to it and go to the Fado bars and listen to them singing it, but uh, young people will like go and, you know, you get a glass of wine, there's a couple of little little appetizer things and then you that's cut yeah it sounds like Greece like yeah. you have the wine mezzetas that was, uh, was great yeah. oh, the other thing there's this thing called the Camara and it's this old arch that's been left and it's kind of like where young like I met up for a day there like it's kind of like where young lovers meet mm-hmm. and it's a really nice it's near the center of town it's like this whole thing and you just have lots of like people waiting for their like prospective dates and it's really like it's something really traditional, s- traditional and sweet yeah, yeah. Just like, and it's an obvious meeting point in the city. It's like, I'll meet you there at 8 o'clock, you know. Yeah, it's like a, before there was uh, digital messaging. I guess that's how it went down. Right. Yeah, I guess so. It was just like a week earlier, meet on Friday at... Yeah, you ever wonder, again. like, people, how they, how people ever made plans before being able to send texts and stuff, mm-hmm. or even giving a phone call? Like, how the hell did you do that? Meet at the, at the train station. You, you got to be there. You not be there. there. I don't know what the hell to do. I can't yes, contact yeah. you. <laughs> yeah. Especially because I'm always like a bit late. So I'm like, I'll yeah, be 15 minutes late. Like yeah. if I, 
to be fair, some of my friends in the UK don't have mobile phones, either through choice or just because they uh, can't be bothered to buy a new one. Yeah. So we'd say, like, when they're at home, it was okay. Maybe here, and, like, there's no room for error because... That's like me. I, I can't. I don't <clears> yeah. Have, I don't have service on my phone. So, like, we have to meet here. So that, that was kind of refreshing in a way. Mm. Uh, but, yeah. Um, it is, I did, like, getting to sort of bring this around to an end... Uh, I guess the other bit's just discovering there's lots of cool hangout places in Athens with great views and cool places to sit and yeah, it's uh, like, but generally like I really, like another big part of this year is reconnecting with well, you're being from, You're from Athens, right? I'm from, uh, my family's yeah. from the south, from uh, Pel- Peloponnese. Like close, close to Sparta. Yeah, so my mum's from, yeah, Mani, which is close to Sparta. Not considered a very nice place. My dad's from Arcadia. So many times in Greece, my mum's gotten out of a ticket she said at first, oh, I'm from money. And the guy was like writing up her ticket. He was like, but my husband's from Arcadia. And the guy was like, it's okay, you can go. <laughs> <laughs> Arcadia, for some reason, carries a lot of weight. I don't yeah. know why. That's so interesting. It's considered like very like trustworthy people, I guess. I'm not sure. Mm. But yeah, there's, um, that was, that was a really big part of this year. Um, how much time do you have left? Yeah, we're, we were coming up on our time and I was just going to wrap it time? up. Yeah. Okay, yeah. Yeah, you got a you got a bus to, to to catch back to Berlin. But yeah, it's been cool having you over. Yeah, man, likewise, you. it was it was great. It was great being here. Yeah, it's crazy, right? Yeah. It's been like two years since we've seen each other. Yeah, uh, we'll see each other soon in the next year because I'll I'll be in Germany and you'll be wherever you are. And it's easy to travel around Europe. So yeah. sounds good. See man. each other. Thanks for being on the show. Thank you.